I want to invite your attention for a reading, if I might, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll read from verses uh, 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 9. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Our lesson today is going to be entitled, We Persuade Men. And obviously the Apostle Paul brings up quite a, a profound point when he mentions the reason that we persuade men or that the apostles persuade men, and of course the same reason that we do. And so we want to talk about a few of those things today, but before we uh, enter into that at this time, we'll ask you to humble yourselves in some manner while we're led in prayer. In the earlier part of the chapter from which we read our text this morning, the Apostle Paul had been teaching and showing that we have a hope beyond this life. And I think all of us are familiar with that. We look forward to going to heaven someday. And that's what Paul was talking about in the earlier part of the chapter, that we have a, a hope beyond this physical life. And that while we all enjoy this life, certainly we do, at the same time, we recognize that in the midst of enjoying this all, we are absent with, from the Lord. That is, we are not with him as we someday shall be in heaven. And so we persuade, he says, or we labor uh, to be accepted of him. And one of the labors that we are involved in is persuading others to go along with us. That's the context of the chapter from which we read our text this morning. I think probably all of us can agree that the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest persuaders of men in the very first century. And our text shows that Paul recognized this as a part of his great work. And this ought to be the work of every Christian because salvation and soul saving and Christianity are serious things indeed. But the preacher has to recognize it as well. We need to realize that when we stand in the pulpit, we are here not to uh, display our scholarship, but we are here to persuade people. We are not here to entertain, though it is fine and wonderful for people to be entertained by the gospel, and I think most of us are, but by the same token, the goal of the preacher should not be to entertain the audience. We are entertained because we love the gospel and we find that entertaining, and that's just fine. But we're not here just for that, and we're not here to uh, express some great theological opinion, even if we happen to have one, which most of us don't. We're not here to express uh, speculations and so on. But our work is to express the gospel so as to motivate or to uh, persuade, if you will, men to obedience as directed by Jesus Christ. Quite obviously, man is a persuasive creature. We're susceptible to the influence and the persuasion of others. We can be led to modify or change uh, our attitudes and even our convictions sometimes through learning and through instruction. If that weren't the case, 
there would be no practical benefit to the preaching of the gospel. But the subtle power of persuasion is, uh, is part of the gospel and part of preaching the gospel. And that subtle power can be hindered by prejudice, disinterest, distraction, and inattention. You may have noticed that most of us who have been preaching for any length of time watch an audience fairly carefully. And when we see a lot of moving about, a lot of talking, a lot of, uh, well, a lot of distraction, that distracts us. That gets our attention. And it, it, the reason that is the case is because while you're preaching the gospel, you want every word to be heard because as you make one point after the other, you progress from one thing to the other. If somebody does something, you know, uh, unnecessarily, that distracts those who are around them. And for just a few seconds, they don't hear what you say. They don't get what you're talking about. And so they may miss the most important part of your lesson or of the sermon. And so all of these things, and I'll tell you, nothing just drives me up the wall any worse than to look out over an audience and know you can tell, believe me, you can tell, when people are just not interested. I mean, you know, they, it's almost like they've just been drugged there and they're not interested in hearing what you have to say. It is really difficult to be fired up and get on, you know, just get on fire for the Lord when you can tell that the audience is not of the same mind. And so these are all things that play a part. But let me get into the meat of the lesson. Why do you suppose that Paul persuaded men? What was the purpose of that? Well, I think the context reveals the answer. And I want to notice uh, just briefly the context. Paul said, first of all, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men or we labor. And these three things, knowing the terror of the Lord, causes us to persuade others. I want to tell you what, Paul had a knowledge. There was just no question about it. And, and if you've ever read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where Paul talks about that fellow that he said he knew above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, he could not tell. Such a one that was drawn up into the third heaven or paradise. And, he, and Paul told about all of those wonderful things that this fellow, he's speaking in the third person and just about everybody agrees that he's obviously speaking of himself. Uh, just about everybody agrees that Paul is talking about himself when he talks about what he saw and what he heard. He said, you know, what I saw and what I heard were so wonderful that if I were to tell you what I've heard, you would think I'm a fool. And he said, I'll not be a fool. I will forbear, that is, I will wait to tell you what I have learned and what I have seen and what I have heard. But he said, lest I should be exalted above measure by the revelations that were given me. He said, there was a thorn given me to buffet me in the flesh. And he said, I besought the Lord thrice or three times that it might be removed from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, I'm not going to remove the thorn, but I'll see to it that you have what you need to get through it. The beautiful point about all of this to me is that Paul saw and heard things that were so wonderful that for some reason the Lord didn't want him to tell it. But you know, it changed Paul forever. He was never the same. What he saw, what he heard, made him so anxious to go himself that he could hardly contain himself. I don't know what he saw. I don't know what he heard. 
But I suspect that's why when he wrote the Philippian brethren that he could say, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to be to depart and to be with God or with the Lord, which is far better. I don't know that of a person, you know, personally, but Paul did. I can't say personally I have seen and heard and I have, I, I have personal experience, but Paul did. And he could hardly wait to go. You know, I remember as a boy, and I probably mentioned this story here before, but I remember as a boy, I, during the summertime when school was out, we lived out in the country in the Ozarks, and I went swimming just about every day. Usually went with Travis Cook and some of the other older boys, and Dad would usually let me go. But one day I asked to go swimming, and for some unknown reason he said no. Well, I weighed that pretty carefully. I knew better than to disobey my dad. That was not a wise move. But on the other hand, I, re I realized what a wonderful time it would be if I could go swimming. And I, you know, I thought about that. I weighed all of that. And I remember thinking in a little boy's mind, I believe it's worth it. And I went swimming. I don't remember the punishment I got. It was probably fairly severe. But I still, quite frankly, though I realize it may not have been best to disobey my dad, I still feel like I got the better end of the deal. And I think that's the way it was with Paul. You know, Paul talks about, uh, in some of his writings, our light affliction, I'll get to that in a little bit, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. And, and he said, it worketh for us a far more eternal and, and uh, exceeding weight of glory. And what he's talking about is these things that we go through in this life, and let's face it, we all go through tough times. We have things that just lay us out. We have things that just discourage us. And sometimes even in the church, there are things that happen that are so discouraging. They're just such a downer, as we sometimes say. That, that happens to all of us. And in every generation, there have been those times and those situations, those, uh, those matters that brethren have had to get through. I have the Millennial Harbinger, uh, a bound volume uh, 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 paper that Alexander Campbell wrote. 41 years he put that paper out. And many times I can read back in those issues and I can read about the very same problems that we're going through today. Exactly the same. Sometimes I've been asked to participate in a study somewhere and to discuss a certain subject. And I'll wonder, I wonder if Campbell wrote anything about that. Nine times out of ten he did. Because they had to go through the same problems that we're going through today. And it's a little bit like Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Just nothing new. I'll never forget, there was a young preacher one time. Now those of you who knew Linwood know how blunt he could be. And most of us have been on the uh, receiving end of that bluntless. Uh, but... Uh, a young preacher came up with some idea that was not scripturally sound, and he approached Linwood with it, and he said, you know, isn't this wonderful? And Linwood said, oh, man, that's not anything new. He said, Alexander Campbell whipped that out 150 years ago. Well, nothing new under the sun. And what we're dealing with today, whatever discouragement, whatever problem, whatever situation you've recently or even in the far past gone through that laid you out, somebody before you went through that just the same way. And what we have to do is stand up straight and stand up tall and stand up for what is right 
and we'll be through it okay. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. And as I said, Paul had a knowledge. In Romans the 11th chapter, which is by the way my favorite chapter in the book of Romans, as Paul began that chapter, he began by speaking to a bunch of Gentiles who were boasting. They were boasting, unfortunately, they were boasting how that God appeared to have cast off the Jews in order that they, the Gentiles, could come into the church. That's what it looked like to them. You know, from the 10th chapter of Acts on, when the Gentiles were welcomed in and Peter baptized Cornelius and his family and then got in trouble with the church at Jerusalem for it, but from that time on, the Jews began to pull away and fall away from the church until by the time Paul came along, the Gentiles were much in the majority, very likely, and the Jews, at least in some respect, had become some of the most formidable enemies of the church that you could find. And so Paul reminds these Gentiles that they, you know, it's not right to boast. He, he reminds them that the only reason that the Jews were ever in God's favor was because they were faithful and they were believing. And he said, that's the reason you are in God's faithful. Uh, you're in God's uh, uh, faithfulness and righteousness is because you believe. But he said, if you ever stop that, then thou also shalt be cut off. And then in verse 22, there is what is called an exclamatory statement where Paul said, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. On them which fell, the Jews, severity, but toward thee goodness. If, notice the condition, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And so, it's just, you know, as Paul considers the goodness and the severity, and, and I have a sermon that I used to love to preach on that. And if you look at the goodness of God, it's just, it's just incredible. It's just profound at how good he was. You start at the Garden of Eden and come right on up. And everything God did for man has always been just far and above the call of duty, so to speak. And then on the other hand, you look at his incredible severity. Take the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve in that garden. He gave them a garden that grew nothing but what was supposed to grow. Thorns and thistles didn't come about, remember, until they sinned. And how would you like to have a garden like that? It just grows what you want, and there won't be any thorns, and there won't be any thistles, and there won't be any weeds. Well, I'd like to be a gardener too. But you know, they sinned. They disobeyed God, and that all changed, and God drove them out of that garden. And instead of a man's living just being given to them, so to speak, now he had to work for it. Instead of the woman being able to bear children, uh, you know, in, in, in pleasure and in comfort, now uh, it would be difficult and it would be painful. And on top of that, she would have to look to her husband and he would rule over her. Things changed dramatically. Severe? Yes. <clears throat> Very severe. And God is just as capable of incredible severity as he is incredible goodness. They are on opposite ends of the pole, but the God that we serve and worship is capable of that. Well, it's just a wonderful idea, and that whole chapter uh, is, uh, is just a great, great, a, a great, great chapter. But Paul had a knowledge of all of this. He knew the terror of the Lord. 
And finally, in 2 Thessalonians, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul said unto you, listen carefully to this, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, how many times have you heard this passage read and almost always from the standpoint of jarring someone to reality or perhaps even scaring them into obedience? It is a scary concept, isn't it? And yet if you look at the passage carefully, it is quite obvious that Paul originally wrote it from the standpoint of giving comfort to those who were God's people. Notice how he said, he said to you who are troubled, rest with us. What's the matter, Paul? Well, all kinds of persecution. The Lord's people are being killed. They're being imprisoned. They're being thrown from cliffs and boiled in oil. And women's children are being taken from them and fed to the lions right in front of them. Paul said, if you're troubled, rest with us when the Lord comes. You don't have a thing to worry about when the Lord comes. You can rest with us and know that all is right. And while this old world is, is melting in, in, with the fervent heat, just sit back and rest with us because all is well. You see, the passage originally was issued as a comforting statement rather than a threatening or scary statement. And so it's only scary for those who are not uh, in, in a faithful uh, position. Now those who have not obeyed the gospel, Paul said, well, they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the kind of terror that Paul is talking about when he said, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. But listen, number two, when Paul spoke of the terror of the Lord, I want to tell you that Paul had more in mind than the obvious. Now, probably when he spoke of the terror of the Lord, he had in, in, in mind, at least partially, the, the judgment. <clears throat> I think all of us could understand that. But I think he also spoke of things that were unseen because we know that Paul had a faith in them. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, and I mentioned that I would get to this passage in a moment. He said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now let me just stop there and I want you to think about this. Our light affliction. Now you think about the affliction that Paul had. Remember I mentioned that out-of-body experience that he had in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It is believed by scholars that that probably was brought on by the fact that the Jews stoned him until he was either dead or left for dead. Was that pretty severe? That seems severe to me. Paul was imprisoned on a number of occasions. Was that light affliction? Seems pretty severe to me. Paul talks about having been hungry. That seems pretty severe to me. And yet you see from Paul's perspective, these were light afflictions. This was not a sarcasm on Paul's part. It was not hyperbole or exaggeration. Paul really meant it this way. Oh, sure, it was severe if you just look at it from the standpoint of just that. 
But it was a little bit like me when I, was, when I decided to go swimming instead of do what Dad told me to do. I feel like I got the best end of the deal. Paul knew that no matter what the afflictions were, no matter what the persecution was, someday heaven was his. What difference did it make if he was hungry? What difference did it make if somebody threw rocks at him and hit him? What difference did it make if he spent some time in a cold, damp prison cell? He was going to heaven. And what was out there was far better and, and worth everything he had to go through in order to get there. That's what this passage is telling us. And it's telling us that the problems we go through are going to prepare us and make us better for something coming down the pike. Listen again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, that is, they're physical. And obviously, they won't always be here. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Well, what is he talking about? Well, for us, heaven, God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, things that we can't see physically but we believe in with all of our hearts. And they give us comfort and we, uh, we just count on them. That's just all there is to it. And that's what keeps us going uh, every day. Well, when you think about this, that means that the problems that you and I sometimes must go through the heartaches that we sometimes must go through, those times that we're just so discouraged that we just think, you know, I'm just going to quit. Have you ever been there? That's tough. Did you know that that is preparing you for something better that's coming? You're going to be stronger. You're going to be better than you ever would have been had you not gone through that particular distressing thing. I may have told you this story too. Uh, like most preachers, I tend to migrate one story from one sermon to the other if it happens to come into my mind. But I used to hear the story about uh, the uh, couple in England that were looking at a, at a teacup on a shelf, as ridiculous as this sounds. And they were admiring it and referring to it as a work of art. It was a very expensive piece. And it is said that while they were looking at it, the cup suddenly began to speak to them. And they stood there and the cup said, you know, uh, I wasn't always this work of art like I am now. He said, uh, you know, there was once a time when I was nothing more than a shapeless mass of clay. And a fellow came along and began to mold me and shape me and he put me on a wheel and began to spin me around and, and reshape me. And he said, I complained bitterly. And I told him I couldn't stand it for another minute. But he just kept on. And finally he had completely reshaped me into the shape that you see now. And just when I thought it was over, he took me off of that wheel and put me in a, in a furnace. And I thought, I can't stand this. And I would say, aren't you finished? And he would say, not yet. And said, finally, he put, took me out and painted me all over with a, with a foul-smelling substance and put me right back in the furnace. And this time, it was hotter than the first time. Well, the story goes on and on and on until finally the cup was finished. And he said, when he finally took me out, I had become what you see today. 
Now, you look at some old church member who is strong, who never gets ruffled, who never becomes discouraged. You know why? He or she has already been through the fire. That's why. They are better than they ever would have been had that not happened. Many years ago now, I remember Benny Cryer and I were on our way to the Philippines and both of us had recently gone through a pretty tough situation at home. <clears throat> and Benny said, we'd been talking about this passage. And Benny said, well, there must be some pretty tough things coming for us. I said, oh, why do you say that? He said, well, the Lord sure seems to be toughening us up for something. Well, that's a good way to look at it because that's what these problems in life do for us. But I think also not only did Paul have in mind those things that are unseen, but probably also the love of Christ. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That is, not physically, but dead spiritually. And that he died for all, that they which live, that is, live spiritually, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so, you know, we were once dead spiritually. But somebody came and died for us that we might live spiritually. And now we have a responsibility to live unto him who died for us and rose again. In Hebrews 2 and verse 9, the apostle said, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Not physical death. Jesus died as dead as any man ever died. But he tasted spiritual death. And you remember just before he died, he was heard to utter that awful saying from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was the sin offering. And in order to fulfill that mission, he had to suffer that. He had to become that sin offering. And a loving father turned his back on his only son just a little bit so that the price could be paid and that's how that we're able to enjoy the spiritual blessings that we enjoy today and that's why we can look forward to going to heaven once we go through and get through all of this life in Romans the first chapter in verse 14 Paul talks about a sense of indebtedness and this probably also played a part he said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Why was he a debtor to them? I'll tell you why. Because they furnished him the opportunity to preach the gospel. And Paul considered that a debt. He was grateful to have had the opportunity to preach. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. In other words, if you're alive, if you're warm, and if you will listen to me preach, I'm in your debt. Now that is, uh, that's the testimony from a real preacher. 
Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we have a debt on us. We're enjoying all of these wonderful things, but the debt on us is to live a righteous life, a good life. Now, you know, Paul was, he was successful in persuading men, <clears throat> quite frankly, because he was persuaded himself. He was convinced himself. There's no worse salesman in the world than somebody who's trying to sell something he doesn't believe in himself. You know, if I, if I knocked on your door and, and I had a vacuum cleaner there, what would you think when you opened it and I said, you know, I got this vacuum cleaner here. I don't know if it'll clean anything up or not, but I need to make a living. I don't suppose you'd be willing to buy this thing, would you? Well, you're not going to buy that. You're not motivated to, you're not persuaded to buy anything with that sort of a sales presentation. You, you're turned off before I even get started. And you know, when you think about it, and I, you know, I don't have anybody in mind, but haven't you ever noticed that sometimes somebody gets up to teach and it is obvious they haven't prepared. They don't really have anything to say. It, it's just not there. And you just kind of have to endure the sermon rather than enjoy it. And I don't enjoy that, do you? Well, we need to be persuaded ourselves. We need to be the kind of people that are just thrilled to death to have the opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ. Well, I got to move along. How did Paul persuade men? Well, Paul persuaded men by demonstrations of power. And I'm not going to take the time to go through all of that. But suffice it to, to be said that Paul was able to do miracles. He had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was able to speak in languages he didn't know anything about. He could raise the dead. He could just do lots and lots of things. Well, I can't do that, and you can't either. And uh, no matter how righteous we are today, we don't have that same manifestation of the gift passed to us today. We can't do miracles. And so I can't persuade men with the same tools that Paul did. Now I can persuade men with the same gospel that Paul preached. The difference is I must study my Bible and Paul got it from above and wrote it down and that's what I have to preach to you. So we both preach the same gospel but we got it in different ways. And that's kind of really what it boils down to. Now Paul preached and he did all of those wonderful things. And he said in Romans 1, 14 through 16, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 21, he said, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God, listen, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Was Paul saying that preaching was foolishness? No, but it appears that to those of the world who are lost, you stand on a street corner somewhere and preach the plan of salvation. The people come by and think you've lost your mind. They don't want to listen to that. That's foolishness to them. But Paul said, it pleased God by that kind of preaching to save those 
that believe. He said in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. In other words, we preach it to everybody. Some enjoy it and some don't, but we preach it to everyone. That's really the benefit of it. And he preached, you know, and lived and persuaded men by means also of example. In Philippians 4 and verse 9, he said, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the, word, and the God of peace shall be with you. I want to tell you something. The world ought to be able to learn of God by watching us. And if that's not the case, if they can't do that, then something's wrong with us. Something's wrong with me if nobody ever guesses that I'm trying to live for God by watching me. You ever thought about that? You know, we, we have to be a Christian when we leave the services of God or the services of the church. Well, what did Paul persuade men to be? He persuaded men to obey the gospel, and that, that's what we do. That's what we labor to do, whether we teach in the public assembly whether as sisters we teach in a private manner or whether as preachers we may travel from one place to the other, we're involved in persuading others to obey the gospel. Paul persuaded men to obtain the righteousness which is in Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. He said, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's saying? I mean, this is magical, you know, majestic language, but you know what he's really saying? Paul's saying, I stood up for what was right, whether folks liked it or not. That's what he's saying. You see, Paul was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. We know that he had family. They are briefly mentioned in the scriptures. At least one of them is. And Paul said, I've counted all of that but loss. I, it, it's no more than dung or manure to me. And, I, and I've given all of that up so that I can win Christ. Now, brother, when you have that sort of a mindset, you're on your way. Because you won't mind to stand up for what is right, even when it isn't popular. And that's what you're going to have to do sometimes. It won't always be popular to stand up for what's right. And some folks are not going to pat you on the back for standing up and doing what is right all the time. Because sometimes you may have to stand up for something that they don't see that way. But you still have the responsibility to do what's right as far as the book says. Now, you know, there were always reactions to Paul's persuasion. I want to just briefly mention this in the last minute of my lesson. Paul's preaching always provoked a response. And you know, I got to thinking about this. Ours does too. It always provokes some kind of response. The Bereans eagerly investigated, Acts 17 tells us. In Acts 17, 32, we learned that the Athenians mocked or made fun of him. Well, you ever had anybody make fun of you? I have. I suppose most of us who preach the gospel have had to endure that uh, one time or the other. Those from Antioch contradicted and blasphemed, and the Bible says they thrust the word of the Lord from them, Acts 13, 45 and 46. You ever had anybody turn you down and say, I don't believe a word of that? Sure you have. Festus accused Paul of insanity, and he said, Thou art mad. 
Acts 26, 24, and 25. Ever had anybody tell you, you're crazy? I have. You probably have too. You know, so many of the same reactions <clears throat> that Paul received, we get too. Felix was terrified and postponed. He put it off. Ever had anybody say, let me think about this and I'll get back to you? Well, that's what Felix did according to Acts 24 and 25. Agrippa made fun of Paul, Acts 26 and 28. But you know, many others were baptized, Acts 16 and 15, Acts 16:33, and on and on and on. Many others were baptized. Sure, some weren't, but many were. And it seems to me that these responses are uh, really not so much a reflection of Paul's preaching, because he preached the same to everybody, but it is rather a, a reflection of the hearers. And this just shows the diversity in the people who come to hear you preach, or for one way or the other, uh, come under the, uh, the scope of what you have to say as they come in contact with the seed of the kingdom. What a tragedy. What a terrible tragedy that many, many people will not be persuaded by any means of all. You know, Jesus in Luke 16 and 31, in that terrible scene of the rich man and Lazarus, the after-death experience there that Jesus allows us to see, the rich man spoke up from Hades, the bad part of Hades, and he spoke to Abraham with Lazarus in his bosom. And he said, uh, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But you know, in uh, Abraham said, uh, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And in uh, Luke 16 and verse 31, <clears throat> Abraham, the rich man had said to Abraham, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one rose from the dead, they would hear. Abraham answered in verse 31 and said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And though that seems preposterous to me, I have to believe it's true. I believe there are some people who would not obey the gospel and who would not believe the truth, no matter who it came from or where it came from. I have to believe that. You know... Some years ago, a sister somewhere sent me a story that I want to leave with you today in closing. Because, you know, it occurs to me that many, many people <clears throat> are not happy with the way the gospel is packaged. They don't like it when you put hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized on the board. Even if you show the Bible passages for it, they don't care for that. And they refuse to obey that, especially the baptism part. But you know, I remember reading in this story about a fellow who had a son who was about ready to graduate from college. Don't remember the boy's name. <clears throat> and I don't know if this is a true story or not. It may just be a story. But it is said that this young man was just about ready to graduate. And his father, who was a wealthy to-do man, called him in his office one day and said, Son, you're getting, ready to, you're getting ready to graduate. What would you like for me to get you as a graduation president? He said, Dad, there's a beautiful sports car in a showroom downtown on such and such a street. That's what I want for graduation. The father said no more. They talked a while, and the boy went his way. On graduation day, the boy came in. The father called him into the office, and the boy came in, and uh, the father congratulated him on having uh, 
you know, graduated from college, told him what a fine son he was, how proud he was of him and all of that. And then he handed him a beautiful wrapped box. The boy looked at the box and was just a little disappointed, but he opened it. And when he opened the box, in this box was this beautiful leather-bound Bible with his name on it in gold. And it made that boy absolutely furious. And he looked at his father and he said, with all of your money, this is what you give me for graduation, a Bible? And he slammed the Bible down on his father's desk and turned on his heel and walked out. Never went home again. The young man was successful in business, very successful, did very well. And one day he began thinking, you know, I was not fair to my dad and I need to go home. I need to make things right with him because dad is getting old. And as he made preparations to leave, word came that his father had suddenly died. And he was asked, since he was an only child, he was asked to come home and take care of his father's estate. He went into the old house and there on his father's desk still was this Bible with the boy's name engraved in it. Tears dripped off of his cheek as he picked it up and idly thumbed through the pages. And in the book of Matthew, verses, uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, the father had underlined this passage where Jesus said, And if ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father which is in heaven give to them who ask him? As he read these words, a car key fell out of the back of the, of the Bible a little tag attached to it. On the bottom of the tag it simply said, paid in full, love dad. You know, we sometimes miss God's blessings because they're just not like we expected. We're looking for them to come a certain way, but in here they come another way. And because the package is not the way we want it, we turn it down. There are millions and millions of people, generations upon generations of people this morning who have done that very thing. They have refused to accept the blessings of God just like this boy refused to accept his father's gift because it didn't come to him like he was expecting. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.